And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. During this current school year, Carthage College is celebrating 150 years of women at Carthage and also celebrating the 25th anniversary of its Women's and Gender Studies program. And as a matter of fact, they have a special event coming up this Tuesday, February 18th, in which they have invited to campus a speaker, writer, and singer-songwriter named Zahira Kelly Cabrera. We'll be hearing from her in just a few minutes. But first, I want to play for you a portion of a conversation which I recorded on the Carthage campus approximately 25 years ago, shortly after the formation of the Women's and Gender Studies program at Carthage. I spoke with three women who were instrumental in that program's formulation, uh, Dr. Pamela Smiley, uh, Dr. Carol Smith, and Dr. Carolyn Hudson, who were members of the English, music, and art faculties, respectively. I'm going to play for you a portion of my conversation with uh, Dr. Pamela Smiley, who is now Maxwell Distinguished Professor in English, as well as a professor in women's and gender studies. Uh, In this portion of our conversation, she explains some of the background behind why it was felt that a women's and gender studies program was uh, important at Carthage. When I teach the course, there's an exercise that I do which, when, in, in which I ask my students to list all of the people that they have studied in the last semester. And I try to keep it to um, courses that are not dealing with facts, like the hard science or physical education. So the theorists, the artists, the philosophers, the writers, the people who have made history, the theoreticians, the, the psychologists. And I have them, I give them um, overnight to do this, to go back to their notes, to list all of the people. And then I take this from, I take all my students' lists, and I compile them. And as you might expect, they ha- there are people on there like Ben Franklin and Socrates and Mozart and Freud and Marx and Martin Luther and Shakespeare. But what's been really interesting each time I've done it is that the ratio of male persons to female persons has been incredibly high. In other words, there's been, at the highest, 99 men listed to one woman, and at the lowest, 30 men to one woman. And most of the women who are listed are women who are listed in, in a course, because they've been taught in a course that has women in the title, women in the arts, women as cultural symbol, women's literature. Very few are taught in general knowledge courses, survey courses. And if, we're, if we consider uh, a, an education, a college education for a student, to give them all the knowledge that they need to be, um, to be familiar with the, the basic concepts of our culture and the things we value, then it seems from my students' listing that the things that we value are very much white male experiences of what it means to live in a world white male experiences of how the human psyche works, white male experiences of what art is, white male experiences of what what the nature of God is. And um, this has consequences, very strong consequences for both our culture as a whole and for our individual female students. And for our culture as a whole, Simone de Beauvoir said that um, women women make up 52% of the population. So by virtue of that very bulk, the number of geniuses that have been lost in those silenced women voices has got to be extensive. 
Um, if you begin from a premise of male experience in the world, for example, let's say you go out to a playground and you see children playing on the playground, and you say, look at those little boys. They're, they're running around. They're tumbling over each other. They're seeing who can run fastest. They're seeing who can collect the most stones, whatever. You might say about human nature, well, human nature is aggressive and competitive. If you begin from that premise, then Freud's theory Freud's theories of the Oedipal complex make absolute sense. Darwin's theory of evolution makes absolute sense. Um, our capitalist competition makes absolute sense. The fact that we spend $12 million a day in our military makes absolute sense. And the fact that little boys in Arkansas, who are 11 and 13, open fire on little girls in their school also makes absolute sense. So if you begin from the premise that male that things that are define male behavior, whether it be male behavior that is physiological or male behavior that is cultural, is completely beside the point right now. But if you begin, begin from the premise that these things that mark male behavior are human, then there are certain consequences to that. Mm. Now, if you instead begin from the premise, if you go to that same playground and you look at the little girls in the playground, you say, oh, why, those little girls are playing a very quiet game in which they're, ner they're playing with their dolls or whatever they're doing. And there's cooperative rules. They're very conscious of who's playing. They are trying to, to include everyone in whatever play they're doing. You would come up with a very different view of human nature. You would say, perhaps, human nature is cooperative. Human nature is empathetic. Now, there haven't been enough women theorists, women artists, women philosophers to have traced a line of mothers to have said, here's the consequences. But certain female, who, and their names escape me right now, I'm afraid, there have been some primate behavioralists who have looked at um, chimpanzees. And generally, chimpanzees are studied because of their aggressive um, competition, the way that they, they hold power within the, the, the group of chimpanzees. But there have been some women primate behavioralists who have looked and have said, gosh, you know, nobody ever looks at the cooperative behavior. Nobody ever looks at who takes care of the babies. Nobody ever looks at, for example, the bonobos who use sexuality instead of aggression as a way of binding together their, their group. So the questions that you're going to ask, the premises you have when you begin looking at human nature and what's inevitable will color the results that you get. And I think that if you began by looking at those little girls in the classroom, I mean, on the playground and saw this cooperation and empathy, my, my suspicion is that you would arrive at a very different conclusion, that we would not be spending $12 million a day in the military, that instead some of that's, that would be in our social programs, that I would, maybe one million of that would be for people, women who have children that they can't raise, they can't afford to raise, maybe one million would be for Social Security, maybe one million would be for, for older people who no longer can take care of themselves, but certainly not $12 million a day on weapons to destroy people. So that's how culturally this makes a difference. Um, individually for our students, it also makes a difference in that, as Virginia Woolf said, we all look back through our mothers, which means that our students come to us at, at an age in which they're looking for ways to deal with the world. And if we give them only male ways to deal with the world, that's how they'll do it. And you'll end up with a lot of Margaret Thatchers. Okay, but if we give them alternative ways of dealing with the world, um, for example, 
let's say a, a, a girl has had a problem with her father. Her father had said something like, um, in a discussion that when she's home, an offhanded comment like, um, oh, O.J. Simpson may have killed Nicole Brown, but but she, I bet that she was a hard woman to live with. And the woman and the student is, is horrified that he would say such a thing that that showed such so little understanding of domestic violence. And he, that student might come back to our classroom and use that example as a challenge to a female student, a female professor, and to see how she will react to see what kind of vocabulary she can get from that mother figure in order to, to go back and to use in her life. Um, Gerda Linner talks about women's history being just that, being allowing women to stand on the shoulders of the women who came before them. So each woman, each woman in a new generation doesn't have to justify herself again as an artist, for example. She can stand on the shoulders of the artists who came before her and therefore use that energy to cultivate her own artistic statement. So she doesn't have to reinvent the wheel each generation. So that's what Gerda Lerner says, that the, that the value of women's history is for the individual women student. So to recap, um, when women's history and women's lives comes back into the equation, we return 52% of the experiences of how it is to live in the world to our kind of collective knowledge about the world. And that has effects both on us as a culture to enrich the way that we can deal with the world and for our individual female students. Uh, that explanation you just gave is kind of interesting to me because it flies in the face of what some people's sort of incomplete notion of feminism is, because I think some people think of feminism as the belief that men and women are essentially the same. And uh, it's interesting to contrast that with what you're saying, which is essentially that men and women uh, have profoundly different perspectives on, on the world, and those two perspectives uh, both need to be heard in order to, to fully grasp uh, the world. Is that a, 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 fair, a fair thing to say? You know, there, there are two branches of feminism. One branch of feminism, as he said, is that men and women are essentially the same, that if you put women in the, in the workplace with men, they can perform the same jobs, same firefighters. The other, but there's another branch of feminism that says that women and men have very different things to bring to the human experience. And um, essentially in the 1960s, feminism did make the decision to go the route that you're describing. It decided during the 60s with the, women, the new women's movement that what women needed was to have social and political equality and economic equality with men and they would be able to then achieve the same things as men but there's another branch of feminism that came much earlier that was in the 1890s when suffrage i think it was 1890 with suffrage where women were saying no the reason we need women to be into the in the political sphere is because they can bring in things like empathy and compassion and mm. nurturance because all of those qualities have been relegated to the private sphere and we want to enlarge them to the public sphere. So um, I guess what I was doing, maybe I was counteracting that kind of prevailing definition of feminism that you're, you're talking about, but both are actually part of the feminist agenda, I'd say. So in the uh, Women's Gender Studies program, what would you say is the, the thing you're most trying to achieve to, to bring those women thinkers and writers and so on to the table for students to experience them? 
well, actually, there, there are two parts. One is to recover the lost artists, and that's the lost artists, the lost thinkers, and that's what Carolyn and Carol are going to talk about, some of those exciting women who have been lost. But the second part is to to go through the process that I just went through with you with the children on the playground, to say, to deconstruct our notion of what reality is by going back and looking at the underlying concepts that have formed our questions that we've asked of the world and therefore have determined the range of answers. And then to, to shift those questions or those underlying concepts just slightly so that different questions are possible and therefore a larger range of answers are possible. And so then that's usually the agenda of feminist theory in most areas. Interesting. That was Dr. Pamela Smiley, Maxwell Distinguished Professor of English and Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Carthage, one of the creators of the Women's and Gender Studies program celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. This interview recorded approximately 25 years ago, right around the time that the program was launched. A celebration of the 25th anniversary of the Women and Gender Studies program is coming up on Tuesday, February 18th with a presentation by Zahira Kelly Cabrera, a well-known writer, speaker, and uh, singer-songwriter. She is going to be doing a presentation in the Campbell Student Union Tuesday beginning at, uh, at 5 o'clock. Carthage's treble choir is going to be providing music for this very special event. Uh, ahead of that, here is a conversation which I recorded with Zahira Kelly Cabrera. Uh, right off the bat, I asked her to explain a little bit about her interesting background. I was born in um, Manhattan, New York City, raised in the Bronx, but also in the Dominican Republic. Um, that absolutely shaped my worldview because I had to go between two very different countries and cultures. And after that, I've lived um, pretty much all over the United States. It was all a learning experience. Um, the last 10 years of my life um, have shaped me a lot. Um, it's just uh, when you go from place to place, um, existing as I am, uh, you eventually realize, you know, um, the similarities between how you're treated also, you know, um, how things vary, but um, mainly I just grew up uh, not really seeing myself anywhere for a long time as a black Latina. And um, for, you know, I would say half of my life, I actually considered that to be the norm for myself. I didn't even understand that I had a right to exist visibly, you know? Um, so really the second half of my life has been kind of figuring that out, you know, just the whys of why there are millions of us, but we are just invisible and, um, sort of building myself up like on the inside Hmm. kind of, you know, I would love to ask you a bit about the matter of calling oneself Afro Latina. And uh, I have seen some of what you have have said about this and about how you want people, for instance, not to use that term carelessly uh, or in ways that, uh, you know, might not be be fully truthful. Explain how you are 
uh, Afro-Latina, and, 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 and for you, what that term really means, what it embodies? I mean, it's the, the concept in itself is very simple. Afro-Latina is really, can just be roughly translated as a black woman from Latin America. And I am a black woman from Latin America. You know, any space that I've entered during my life, pretty much regardless of where I've lived, I've been received as a black woman. Um, even if that's something that I didn't identify with because of Dominican culture, where we like to see ourselves as somehow colorless, even though we're colorist, which is, yeah, it's complicated. The way that it's been misused is just people who would not identify as a black woman in any space have used it as a label to kind of seem more interesting or because, I don't know, maybe their hair is curly or they have like, you know, I don't know, a great, great, great grandfather or something or mother who was black. Because the reason that's problematic is because um, the term was created specifically um, to create visibility for the whole swath of millions of black Latin Americans who have been pretty much excluded from history books and media, politics, um, pretty much everything um, for, you know, like 600 years. So uh, when people do that, they're actually like taking up a space that they don't necessarily occupy. You know, like if you don't trust the world as a black person visibly, then, well, you know, then that means that you belong to the majority of Latin America that is represented, which is um, so-called non-black Latin Americans, which is who we see everywhere when we think of Latin America. What what would be the most significant ways in which you have felt invisible as an Afro-Latina woman? I mean, I would say that that's something that covers just pretty much everything. Um, for example, I was always uh, a bookworm, and I can't count how many books I've read in my life. But at some point, I realized that I was reading about pretty much literally anyone but people like me. And that really hit me hard that, um, you know, the so-called ultimate source of knowledge, which was books, I don't know, that's, you know, the idealistic thing that we're taught, right, Um, also erased me, you know? Um, When I looked at the television or movies, or open a magazine. There was literally just never a reflection of myself. I had to look for what is maybe the closest. And it's like, you know, it's always a thing of, you know, we're all human and we can identify with each other. And that's that's a thing that I had to learn very early on, you know? Um, But when it's the other way around, um, when I ask those questions about where I am, people like, kind of weaponize that like well can't you just identify with other people but I don't know it never occurs to them that you know if I if you uh you know logged on to your Netflix and everybody was Afro-Latina and that's all that you could ever find you would also be wondering about yourself and if you matter you know Mm. um and that's kind of what happens with us it's like we are never there we never matter and on any level 
Uh, we looked through the history books. That's where, you know, supposedly everything important happens. And we're completely absent from our country's history. Hmm. We go to school and we learn as much about ourselves as you do, which is nothing. Right. You know? It's just like, uh, I don't know, it's just this huge void that you're supposed to be just um, happy and content with. Because that's just life. And it's a void that you've been working very hard, in a sense, to fill with a lot of the work that you do. Is that fair to say? Yeah, basically. We're speaking with Zahira Kelly Cabrera, and she is going to be coming to the campus of Carthage College and speaking at 5 o'clock in the Campbell Student Union Auditorium. Uh, She is going to be giving a talk on post-colonial feminism. And uh, and this, this talk will will draw in in large measure uh, from her own uh, experience as an Afro-Latina woman uh, who is still, in a sense, uh, feeling the the heavy weight of the legacy of colonialism, something which we do not talk about enough. Um, For our listeners who are, are unacquainted with kind of the history that is behind all of this, uh, help us understand what is most important for us to know about how the legacy of colonialism is still very much in the air and still very much a factor in the experience of women, uh, particularly in Latin America. Um, that's a thing that just has never left. You know, um, when we think about the process of colonialism, it was, you know, um, European colonizers arriving in Latin America. Um, the first thing that happened was indigenous genocide. Um, after that, they brought in slave ships from Africa. Um, and those are that's like a part that everyone skips. Slave ships were brought in from Africa, you know, in the early 1600s. By then, there were, you know, like that was way before um, it started to happen in the United States. So, um, basically, uh, anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity, as we know, it actually began in Latin America and the Americas, not North America. Um, the people who colonized us were the actual architects of that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, not so much um, Britain. Britain and um, France were kind of following in their footsteps, in a sense. So, you know, that we could say this is all in the past, but you fast forward to today in Latin America, and when you check for the most marginalized groups of people, they're still indigenous women. It's still black women. Um, There's still a hierarchy where um, pretty much the whiter you are, the better you're going to be treated in society, the more opportunities you have. If you look through the upper classes, people are going to look mostly white or close to it. You know, it's still like, you know, a gradient that is like light to dark with dark at the bottom. Um, You turn on TV in Latin America or you look at anything Latin American, you know, anywhere in the world, this includes the U.S., and you're going to find basically the lightest skinned of people, the closest to white. You're not going to find black people. 
you're not going to find indigenous people. You might find um, the next sex thing to white in Latin America, which is mestizos, which is mixed white and indigenous people who don't really align with indigeneity at all, who also contribute to the oppression of indigenous people. So we have like this leftover system that prevails even in 2020. Um, as much as people find it hard to admit or just don't know about it because we're painted as just like a large kind of like swath of indistinguishable brown or something like that, you know, but that's not really how it works. Even when we think about brown, you know, like say we, who was the highest paid actress in the United States, it was Sofia Vergara, who is a Latina of majority European descent, you know? Those are not opportunities that would come to um, a black Latina or even an indigenous Latina. Um, We turn on the television in Latin America and we look at the uh, political government and we look at the upper classes and you won't find indigenous people. And they are the original people of the land. So that right there is already settler colonialism to the max. Hmm. So, so, so what, it just never left. Right. So what does fen- feminism look like in Latin America, and particularly among Afro-Latina women? Uh, what kind of feminist movement are we seeing? And, uh, and maybe does it differ in any particular ways from, for instance, the feminist movement Uh, here in the United States? I would say that uh, it's similar to black feminism in the United States, but it's also not because we face a lot more marginalization. We have a lot less access to resources. Uh, We face a lot more invisibility um, in general. So it's like we are up against like like things that are the same, but also um, slightly different. Um, they're worse, you know. Uh, and we still face the same struggle as black feminism in the U.S., which is like convincing people that black women have a particular struggle that is not like other non-black women, and that it matters, that we matter, you know. Um, there is still... Um, sort of like this generalized feminism in Latin America, just like happens in the U.S. In the U.S., we call it white feminism. In Latin America, we can't call it that because it's not majority white, you know? But it's like this generalized Latin American feminism where, you know, everything is washed with, we're all women, but doesn't acknowledge that all women are not being treated the same. Hmm. You know? It doesn't acknowledge that There's literally no narrative in Latin America for loving a black woman, but if you turn on the TV, all of the narratives are about loving white and light-skinned Mestiza Latinas. Literally every day you can watch them be loved on TV, but you can never watch anyone love us, you know? So it's like to say, unless we're there as a maid in the background or we're playing a literal slave, you won't find us. So, you know, even when they, for example, address, you know, uh, sexism in the media, because, of course, there's sexism that they face, right? I've actually had conversations where they're talking about how 
women, Latin American women are treated in the media, for example. And when I go, well, what about black Latinas? We don't even exist in it. They're like, that's a topic for later. That's a subtopic for later. Hmm. You know? So, like, we don't exist in the general Latina, you know, scale of importance. We're a subtopic for later. Hmm. What Feminism, a lot of the times, encompasses pretty much non-black women only. Like, not ours. And that in itself tells you that there is a hierarchy of womanhood. Uh, womanhood is um, very nuanced in Latin America, like everywhere else. And we are the same. You know, all of these things come into play, color, race, uh, class, um, and hetero, like whether you, whether or not you're hetero, whether or not you're cis. You know, and, and, at, and everywhere um, black, Trans women end up at the very bottom of the of the scale, you know. So, you know, that's kind of a the landscape in Latin American feminism at the moment. Have you seen anything of in terms of significant improvement? I mean, is there at least some motion in the right direction, or do you see things as being largely stagnant and and uh, w- with not very much progress as yet being made? I would say that it's a little bit of both, you know. Um, it's one of those, the more things change, the more they stay the same kind of thing. If we have a lot of parallels with the United States, you know. It's like, um, have things progressed in the U.S.? Yes. And also have they stayed the same in ways that they really shouldn't have yet, you know. Um, so we've made a lot of headway in the last few years, mm. in particular as far as black Latinidad goes. Um, but at the end of the day, we are kind of still facing the same things. Like, we've achieved a little bit more visibility, but with that visibility has also come a lot of pushback. Mm. You know? I would liken it to, like, say, you know, when Obama won and everyone was angry because he was black and then they elected Trump kind of like as a reaction. Um, Right now what I'm seeing is um, people pushing back to having to learn about black Latinos, um, rendering us, trying to render us invisible again, um, trying to render us like unimportant again. And trying to refute that we exist in enough numbers to matter. And, you know, the irony about this is that it's people who, in any other situation, would be clamoring for their minority rights. But then when it comes to black Latinos, they're like, well, you're a minority. Why are you supposed to matter anyway? You know? Um, we're always stuck in that crux, like, of being the minority within the minority. Um, because, you know, oppressed people can also be oppressors, and that's kind of how Latin America works. Hmm. Um, so I would say that right now we've made headway, but it's just not enough. It's going to take more than just us. It would take other people to actually care, too. And I would say that um, it's similar to that in the U.S., you know. Um, we've met headway, but we still have all these issues with indigenous people pretty much not getting any space anywhere and still having to struggle to survive 
um, with anti-black violence and all of this. So, you know, we face the same things still. Like, yeah, we're fighting and we're, we're we're doing the work. I mean, just 10 years ago, there wouldn't even be opportunities for somebody like me to be speaking at all of these schools. Hmm. Literally, it wouldn't exist. So that is already a huge step, but is it enough? Honestly, no. We have a long way to go, hmm. you know? You... uh are also a singer and a songwriter, and you also are a painter. Um, I wonder if you could just say a quick word about the significance of these artistic endeavors in your work as a feminist, uh, and what do you see as the potential role uh, of artistic expression uh, when it comes to, for instance, trying to advance uh, the feminist cause? Um. As far as my artwork, it's honestly I always focused on women who look like me and were from my background, but I didn't necessarily notice it until later on. Um, I started uh, publishing my work when I actually wanted a pinup tattoo, and. At that time, I searched the internet high and low, and I couldn't find any black pinups. And I couldn't stand the idea of putting a non-black woman on my arm forever when that's literally the ideal everywhere that I see, and I never exist. So I, I suddenly remembered, like, wait, I can do this myself. Um, and when I did publish that, suddenly I got tons of commissions from black women and Asian women who were like, wait, can you do something like that for me? Because I never see myself either. So at that point, it kind of clicked for me that that was a thing that needed to be done. Hmm. Um, I've continued sort of progressing and just representing um, women of my background, um, different shapes and sizes, and sort of claiming their own worth. I've done a few art shows, um, and I would say that the role in that is just like, you know, filling that void that we were talking about earlier, for me anyway, you know, even though I've also uh, been reconsidering just the fact that I have to do something like that, that has like this very specific purpose of filling the void and it speaks to just how you know I'll go to an art museum and I'll like look at this sculpture and it's just like a weirdly shaped glass sculpture and it'll be like by a white artist and it suddenly clicks for me that this person didn't have to think about filling a void and consuming their life mission with like activist work because they're fine already you know, they could just be like, well, what do I really, really want to do? It's this weirdly shaped vase or something, <laughs> you know, and they just indulge. And like, I've been struggling with that right now. You know, like, do I get to just do things because they make me happy or do they always have to like, do I always have to carry that weight? Like, that's part of the, op the oppression, you mm. know, like, I don't get to rest. <laughs> and just do things for pleasure, you know? 
I have to keep carrying that weight, and that's like you know colonial legacy too, mm. kind of. Um, as far as my music, I'm also kind of traversing, taking back genres that were taken from us. Like in Latin America, most of the popular genres are Black Latino genres, but we pretty much rarely ever get to have careers in our own music. And people see that as normal. When you ask about it, they're like, well, why does color matter? Music is for everyone. I'm like, if it doesn't matter and music is for everyone, then how come there's never any black women? You know, everything implodes at that point, you know. The the backtrack, the denial, the okay, well, who cares? Just everything but acknowledging that it's a problem. You know? So for me... um, Doing black Latino genres is sort of doing my part to take back the things that are ours. Like, I don't have a problem with sharing. But it's not sharing if only you get to be rich and have a career at it and be known for it. And we don't when it's our creation. You know? How optimistic so are I'm you about... I'm kind of faced with that in every way, everything that I do. Yeah. You know? How optimistic are you about this changing? How optimistic are you about the future? Do you see signs of promise? I do see signs of sort of progress, but is it enough as of yet? No. Um, But, you know, there's still time. I've seen enough changes in my lifetime. Like... uh, like I said, like just 10 years ago, um, the work that I do now wouldn't even be possible. So am I optimistic? Yes. Do I think that I'm going to somehow witness a complete 180 um, and a solution, you know, a magical solution for it all before I die? Probably not. <laughs> you know, that's, um, I always go back and forth on that because. It's been 600 years. Are we going to suddenly make headway in a few? Maybe not. But we're trying, and we have made at least some progress. So Mm. I don't know. I just have to be realistic about my optimism. (laughs) Understandable. (laughs) Zahira Kelly Cabrera is going to be speaking at Carthage College this Tuesday, February 18th, at 5 o'clock in the Campbell Student Union Auditorium. Uh, she is coming to Carthage at the invitation of the Women's and Gender Studies program. They are celebrating their 25th anniversary this this year. Zahira Kelly Cabrera's talk will be on post-colonial feminism. Uh, this is free and open to the public. Zahira Kelly Cabrera, I appreciate you taking time for this conversation. Thank you so much, and best wishes with your important work. Thank you for having me. And to finish out this edition of The Morning Show, I want to turn back to that earlier conversation with several of the creators of Carthage's Women's and Gender Studies program. In this case, Carolyn Hudson talks about the first time she remembers students asking about the absence of women in the narrative of art history. I had gone through, as Carol had, uh, a very much canonical training. As I was trained, in fact, as I think back on it, I could honestly say I didn't hear about any women through my entire training. I was trained in England, in the university system in England. And it wasn't until, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, Carol, you think, um, where actually students in the classroom 
would start to say as you're giving an intro to art history class, well, aren't there any women or didn't women ever paint in this time too? And at first that, that question would just take you aback completely <laughs> because you'd think, oh, uh, women. And you try and draw on your own on your own training and there just weren't any. And so what what you had to do then is go and start looking and you had to start engaging in research. And and actually once you do that, you discover, as Carol said, that there are indeed many women. But they have been excluded from the textbooks. So if students aren't aren't able to encounter them in their textbooks and if we aren't able to encounter them, then you have to ask the question, why are they not in our textbooks? Mm -hmm. And in, in the 19th century, when you were talking about the uh, romantic musicians, um, in the 19th century, for example, there was uh, the leading science of the day, uh, craniometry, uh, put, put its efforts into essentially reinfor reinforcing a social system where women were considered very much secondary. And so uh, in, the, in the way that that our leading scientists are fascinated by um, genetics right now. Craniometry was, was a pressing issue. And um, a, a leading scientist called Broca and one of his disciples called Gustave Lebon actually set about measuring uh, women's skulls and weighing their brains to determine that they were in fact um, secondary to men, that they shouldn't be given education because they weren't as intelligent as men, that they shouldn't, and so on and so on. Wow. Um, and so to such an extent that published in the, the leading anthropological journal of 1879, Gustav Le Bon is able to say something like this. Without doubt, there exists some distinguished women, very superior to the average man, but they are as exceptional as the birth of any monstrosity, as, for example, of a gorilla with two heads. Consequently, me, we may neglect them entirely. Mm. And so it's quite clear that, in, that throughout history, there have been very many exceptional women in all fields. But because of a pressing need for society to see this as extraordinary, that they have been quite consciously disregarded and quite consciously kept from our text, in which case, as Pam started off by saying, you don't have a heritage which, which is reinforced and documented that our students can refer to, that we can refer to. So each time you start talking about women, you have to try and remember if there were any. Mm. So when students are saying to me in my class, well, were there any women? and I had to start going back and looking for them. The first one I came across was, uh, was a woman who was in, in the arts as famous as Hildegard of Bingen is, was Artemisia Gentileschi. And she was a 17th century Italian. And interestingly enough, the reason that we, we find her so easily is because she's recorded in the Roman law court. So it wasn't very difficult for um, for feminists to discover her because mm. she's there over all these records. And why is she there? She's there because her father chose to take to the law courts um, a charge of rape. Um, his daughter uh, was raped by a man he had hired to teach her perspective. And, um, and for whatever inscrutable reason, he chose to take this to court 
because you know, in, in the process of doing this, he's going to ruin her reputation. She's then unmarriageable, really. Um, but, but anyway, for this reason, she becomes famous. And when feminists started to research her, they discovered that she was second to Caravaggi, who is uh, a leading Baroque artist. She, she earned more money than other uh, artists did. She was extraordinarily well-known in her day. She was extraordinarily prolific. Um, as many artists uh, have done, she started as being the daughter of an artist, and that's true for many of the people that we would talk about today. Mm. Um, it, it's true that um, to get a good start, women really need to have the support of fathers, brothers, the network around them. And, and very often, when fathers have promoted their daughters, they, they have a much easier time becoming famous. So. Artemisia uh, studied in her father's workshop. Um, very quickly, by 19, she was surpassing her father, as is evidenced by him having to hire out a master to teach her perspective. But when you go to the textbooks, what you find is her father's name, Orazio, but you don't find Artemisia's name mm. still, even though it was clear that her skills had surpassed his. So she's in, she's in our records for a very peculiar reason. Um, but she is one of the, when Carol talks about E.T. as being a superstar, Artemisia, I think, is perhaps now increasingly in textbooks because she's a larger-than-life figure. Um, she certainly was no, no shrinking violet. You know, she fought back, and she fought back with a vengeance, and, and she had a loud voice. And um, she, her, the largeness of her personality makes, makes her an interesting person to talk about. In textbooks, there are plenty of letters of her um, having. She she essentially cold calls um, to sell her work. So she writes she writes to various cardinals saying, uh, look, "Look at my work. It, it's excellent. Everybody agrees it's excellent. I work for better people than you do, um, than you are." And you know, and and pretty much promotes herself. And she was just a, a marvelous salesman. She demanded high prices for her work. She wasn't about to. She wouldn't let people see her work before they paid her, because often what happened was other people would copy her work. Then that was a no. You know, you would steal each other's ideas. And so she wanted payment before they before they saw it. Uh, so we have wonderful stories uh, about her. So so my next stage when students had asked me uh, who who these women were, was I could take them Artemisia. But then, over the years, I've been able to take them very many more people. If, if we're on, on this road to rediscovery, Artemisia is, is somebody that one could easily rediscover. But then there are examples of people, a contemporary of hers, Judith Leister, who was a Dutch artist, who is less accessible. And this raises another issue that women artists have to contend with. Um, Judith Leister, her work has continuously been attributed to other people. Mm. And there have been kind of significant debates in academe about whether such and such a work is really Judith Leister's or whether it is, in fact, Franz Hals. And there is an insistent, um, determined effort to prove that her work are not, her works are not hers, but mm. are, in fact, you know, another great star, painting star of the era, even when, in some instances, her work has been discovered to have been signed in all the textbooks it was previously attributed to Franz Hals, and mm. therefore great. 
And then when it's discovered <laughs> really, in fact, to be signed, academe tends then to really go to a lot of effort to, to argue that, no, this must have been a mistake. Mm. So when it's acknowledged to be hers, then the next claim is, well, but she's just copying Franz Howells. Mm. So you have to struggle with this kind of thing um, consistently. It's an effort simply to put women into textbooks. Dr. Carolyn Hudson is a retired art professor from Carthage College, and she was one of the first faculty members to participate in the newly formed Women's Studies Program at Carthage, now known as the Women's and Gender Studies Program. It is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, and an event that is part of that celebration is coming up this Tuesday, February 18th, 5 to 7, in the Campbell Student Union Auditorium. Uh, that event will feature a presentation on post-colonial feminism by Zahira Kelly Cabrera and also a performance by Carthage's treble choir. More information is available at carthage.edu. This event is free and open to the public. I'm Gregory Berg.